Questions from last time. Could you give us another example like the right hand rule? I'm going to talk about that when we start in a minute here. I did. If you, and it's not under the health sciences, which is a pain in the butt, I don't know why that is. So for those of you guys that aren't aware, I have recorded these and they're going to be podcasted through the university iTunes U, or iTunes University. If you go to the ETSU website, there's an ETSU podcast link on the homepage, and that will take you into iTunes U, which is just the university version. So it's a free download. If you have iTunes already, then it'll be there automatically. And with iTunes U, if you search biomechanics in iTunes U, it'll come up under East Tennessee State. It currently does not come up under the health sciences or the medicine tab, and I'm not sure why that is. I'm working with the IT guy to figure that out. But if you search biomechanics within iTunes U, it'll come up. Just look. There's a category by title of the lecture, and then date, and then university uploaded. If you find ETSU, I'm the only biomechanics heading under there, so it'll be there. And then I'll try and get it into the health and medicine or whatever it is. So how do you get the iTunes So if you go to ETSU's homepage, it says ETSU podcast, you click on that. And then if you don't have iTunes, it'll give you a free download. And then if you click on the my course, which is it says Biomechanics PHTY 6103 or 613 over whichever number the course number is. You can subscribe to a podcast, which means every time I put a new lecture on there, it'll automatically download to your iTunes. So you just do it once, set up to record all of them, and then anytime now and moving forward, it'll take all those and put them into your iTunes. Now, if you don't listen to them, it'll stop recording at some point in time. It'll stop playing them back. I think if you don't listen to like six or seven in a row, it stops downloading automatically. So if you use it, then it's not going to be an issue. If you don't use it, then it won't download for you automatically. How fast do you normally upload them to you? Um, I will go usually the afternoon of the lecture. I'll get it uploaded, and then it can take anywhere from two to four hours once I put it on until it actually posts for download. So it should be up by the evening of the day that I lectured. Can you, what category is it under? I'm here right now. Okay. What? It should be under health and medicine, but it's not right now. So I'm working with the guy to get it there. But if you just search biomechanics in the top right, and then you just So instead of me describing, let me demonstrate. My projector will turn on. Also, as a reminder, Thursday's class, we will meet at 11 o'clock across the street in the Mini Dome for a tour of the biomechanics lab over there. So, for those of you guys that had exercise science here, you know where that is. If you don't, 
the main lab is in room 113 in the mini dome. Yes. We switched our test to main for PT basics. Yeah. No, no, it won't anymore. What? It won't get worse. Are we good? Okay. So at 11 o'clock on Thursday, we'll be in room 113 in the mini dome. The mini dome is a confusing place to negotiate, so if you don't know where it is, get there early to find it. And yeah, if your legs don't work, you're in trouble because you're going to have to walk a ways to get there. It's probably best to park over, well, I park over by the CPA and walk over because it's not too bad parking over there. Just going to tour it and get a demonstration. Okay, so to get to my podcasts, here's the ETSU homepage. ETSU podcasts. It probably doesn't have iTunes on this computer, which will be a pain. That's fine. Wow. No, we do not have class at 10 o'clock. Just go in there at 11 o'clock. So that's how you get to iTunes. And once this downloads, I'll show you guys the rest. Maybe after class today. Um, oh, yes. I also have put a sample quiz onto D2L for you guys. And for your quizzes, you are required to use what's known as a lockdown browser, which doesn't allow you to access things like PowerPoint and your notes and stuff like that on your computer when you're taking your quiz. So if you go into the assessments page, assessments tab in D2L, there is a thing under assessments, and you guys will see you have an active sample quiz. And you have to download the Lockdown browser, which is what I just said doesn't allow you to get access to Microsoft and things like that. I want everyone to do that by next week and see if you can't figure out how to get around security settings because your computer is not going to like that. What I'll do is I will... Can we just take them here? Yeah. Is it our setup here on these computers? It is, but there's only four computers. Mine downloaded it. I opened the page, but I didn't open it. Right. I will send you guys a link for the how-to instructions on utilizing the lockdown browser. I'll do that this afternoon. No, it won't. You just have to change that. It's pretty easy to set up. When I had the class do it last semester, no one had a problem with it once I sent the information and instructions on how to do it. So I'm hoping that you guys don't have problems with it as well. But if there is problems, play with those before next Tuesday, and we can, I can work with you guys on getting it set up in your computers if you have issues with that. So this is just a practice thing? So all it is is, it, yeah, the sample quiz is just stupid questions that allows you guys to see how the quiz will be set up. It's true, false, and multiple choice, just like your quiz will be. And it shows you the feedback that you'll get when the, when the quiz is over and how to get into and out of it. So there's nothing on there related to the content. It's just understanding how to use it. So if you all go through and can do the sample quiz, then you'll understand how to get into the lockdown browser, how to answer questions, what it'll look like when you actually take your quiz. So it's nothing to do with content. It's just getting you guys familiar with how to get into to utilize the software to take the quiz. Do that by next Tuesday so we can solve any problems before your quiz is following.
Sam, yeah. Nope, you take your test here. Do we just bring our computer? Just bring your computer here, yeah. And for those of you guys that don't have laptops, we can use the computer lab down the hall, so it's not a problem. I know there's a few of you guys that didn't have it. Now, before we get into today's lecture, I want to talk about trigonometry. Who remembers a saying to calculate the sides of a right angle triangle? What's your saying? Old hippies are hot on acid. Old hippies are high on acid. Right? If I go like that, that, and that. That works. Does everyone know what I'm talking about here? No. no. Okay. So old hippies are high on, acid, high on acid. If you're looking at this angle, this is opposite, this is adjacent, this is the hypotenuse. So the sine, to calculate the sine of this side, is old over hippies or opposite over hypotenuse. So Katoa is the same. Yeah. Let's use that. So. Uh, so, right? So this is sine, cosine, and tangent. Did everyone take trigonometry? It's been many years, right? Does this look totally foreign to anyone? Okay. Does anybody else have any other sayings? Oscar had a heap of apples. Oscar had a heap of apples. What do you got? Some old horse caught another horse taking those away. That's a good one. All right. <laughs> this will be on the test. Yeah, I learned um, Oscar had a heap of apples, some corn too. <laughs> All right. So just to get you guys thinking a little about trigonometry, because we're going to use, use it for some problem solving today. And you guys will have to use it for some problem solving moving forward. Hint. So we talked last week about reference systems and local reference system versus global <laughs> reference system. And when you're doing a kinematic analysis or a series of free body diagrams, 
Watch out, there's some water down there. You utilize a series of free body diagrams, connect those static analyses together, and then you can get a kinematic analysis or a dynamic analysis, a movement diagram. What this shows here, this is one static position of a movement analysis, so this looks like a gait trial. And you can see that they have the global coordinate system set up, so X is that individual walking anterior, Y is positive to the left, and Z is positive going superior, facing up toward the ceiling, which is a general consensus on most how most global coordinate systems are set up. So when you read about global coordinate systems within a room or within an environment, this is your standard setup as far as what's positive for X, Y, and Z. What is it again? X is positive going anterior. Y is positive to the left and Z is positive to the ceiling. And if we apply the right hand rule, X is positive where my fingers are going, Y is the closest direction, and Z is positive straight up. So that's just what it is right there. And now with all the fancy computer systems that they're utilizing, no one does this by hand anymore because it's just extraordinarily time consuming and unnecessary because there's all the math that can be done by computers. But the way that the computer calculates this is that each one of these markers, this is what's known as a Helen Hayes marker setup, and it's just the way they put the markers on the body in order to calculate how each segment moves. Each of these markers is assigned a local coordinate system and how that local coordinate system moves relative to the global coordinate system represents how the thigh moves relative to the global coordinate system or how the knee moves relative to the global coordinate system. So it's taking, instead of looking at just the movement of the marker, they actually create an X, Y, and Z for each marker and then how that coordinate system moves relative to the global coordinate system is how you can calculate how each segment moves. By each segment, I mean either the pelvis or the thigh or the knee or the shank and so on. So it's local coordinate system moving within a global coordinate system. So this is known as a Helen Hayes marker setup, which is you have one segment or one marker usually per segment and then one at the joint centers. This setup here on your guys' right is known as a point cluster technique where you have a lot of segments, or a lot of markers, excuse me, on one segment, which allows you to get more detailed information on how that segment moves. So if I'm looking at how the thigh moves with the Helen Hayes marker set up, I have one segment, or one marker on the thigh, and then one at the hip, and one at the knee. Whereas if I'm looking at a point cluster system, I've got, how many do I have? Three, six, nine markers on the thigh. So I can get a lot more detailed information if I pull more information from that or if I have more markers set up on a specific segment. I don't know what they use in the lab and maybe we'll get a demonstration on Thursday and they can show us what they use. So that's a kinematic analysis setup. This is two different kinds. And today, once we finish with the, some of the math, we're gonna get into dynamic analysis and talk more about this and other types of systems to measure how people move. Any questions on coordinate systems? Was that clarifying a little bit? Kind of. Kind of. Okay. But like X is also positive in the right. Like, you know, X, Y, Z, and you have 
see coming out of the page or into the page. You know how they have those two. Right. So it's different depending on what you're doing. Right. Okay. So this is a generic, this is sort of the standard global coordinate system for a research laboratory. Mm -hmm. But the local coordinate system can be independent of that or it can be the same. And for some reason a laboratory might have their own global coordinate system. So like you said, X could be pointing positive to the left and Y could be going posterior and Z could be coming out at you. I don't know if that actually works out. But they can all be different based on what is defined. So that if you're reading a kinematic analysis and you'll read a lot about these when you're talking about gait trials or reading things of what they do with gait in research, they're going to define what their global coordinate system is and then define movement relative to that. So if they moved, for this example, they're going to say they walked in a positive x direction, which means that they walked going forward some direction in the laboratory or they took a step toward the positive y direction, which can change based on what they've defined. Uh, they might want to check in your book. There's one nice figure in there that talks about using the right-hand rule, both for the, the global system like this, but also to describe the direction of the torque mm. with a limb. And I don't, you might be confused about that. So talking about force analysis, we these are um, similar to the descriptions that I gave you guys last week when I talked about vector composition and vector resolution. So you can either add vectors together depending on the direction or subtract them if they're opposite. Here's an individual in the traction like I showed you guys last week. And this, they're all linearly lined up so you can just add and subtract them. Does everyone remember that from last week? Vectors going in the same direction. You can add to get a combined composition of forces and you can be subtracted if they're working in opposite directions. But if what if they're not acting in parallel, so they're not in the same line, we talked a little bit about, about this last time when I showed you guys the traction unit where there was a vertical component and a posterior component or an anterior component, but they have component forces if you look at the component forces, you can create a resolution, or you can pull these together and add them to get a resultant force or a resolution force. So, for example, if I had one force, this is going to be easier if I draw it. So I've got two forces acting together. We're going to say these are the same length because my drawing isn't that great, which is represented by this here. We'll kill the old hippies for a second. So if I have this force here, and if I have this force here, I can add those two together because they're going in the same direction, I'm just going to shift this arrow here, and then those two will add together because they're going in the same direction. And what I'll get is a resultant force, which is the combination of those two forces added together. This is known as the parallelogram method, or just adding tip to tail, or tail to tip, of vectors acting in the same direction.
Is that okay? Now the same thing occurs here. So you have vector A, vector B, and vector C. And if you add A plus B, you go, you add this B to the end of A, which is represented by this line, dashed line here, you can get the resolution vector A plus B. And if I were to add C to the end of that resolution vector, I can get A plus B plus C, which comes down to the end there. Now when you're combining forces like this, they're going to have a direction and a magnitude, right? We talked about that before. So it's a vector, it has a direction and a magnitude. So if you're trying to utilize this method to combine forces, you have to make sure that the lengths and the angles are all the same. So my B is at the same angle and the same length or the same magnitude and the same direction when I add it to A in order to determine where my resultant force is going to act and in which direction. Questions about adding vectors? So within the body, and this is from your textbook, you can look at the resultant force or the joint reaction force at the hip relative to the individual's body weight and the muscle force required or acting across the hip. So this vector here is to represent the individual's body weight. And this vector here is representing the hip abduction force, that's HAF, is hip abduction force. What's the hip abductor muscle primarily? Glute medius is correct. You guys, you haven't had that in anatomy yet. You're on the back, okay. So glute medius, as you guys will learn if you don't already know, is the primary abductor of the hip. So that's the force from the muscle connecting from the iliac crust down to the greater trochanter, from the pelvis down to the thigh bone. And when that contracts, you have a force going down, which is in line with the body weight so the body doesn't fall over. Now that has to be equaled by something or the body's gonna tip over. And so there's a force that's going up through the hip joint, which if this is a static situation, will be equal and opposite. Remember Newton's third law? Equal and opposite, so a static situation. So there's an opposite force, and in order to calculate the magnitude of that force, you can combine the body weight force with the hip abduction force. So you add those two together, utilizing the vectors, making sure that they're the right magnitudes and angles. And then that would be your resultant force if I had an arrow coming from here down to here, but we're looking for an equal and opposite force, which is the joint reaction force. So it's gonna be equal magnitude and opposite in direction. And that is estimated here by this dotted line here. So this is a joint reaction force based on the forces of the body weight and of the hip abductor muscles, or the hip abductor force. And shown in this picture, they have a prosthetic in there, so the individual had a hip replacement. They're trying to find out the forces going through that individual hip replacement.
So this is vector composition and then utilizing Newton's third law of opposite reaction in a static situation to determine the joint reaction force on the hip based on the body weight and the muscle forces acting at that segment. This is probably an appropriate time to point out that as you can see we only talk about one muscle force here relative to the body weight. And the body weight usually just has one, is always going to be one magnitude. But the hip abductor forces and all the diagrams you're going to see, we're going to simplify all the muscle activity probably down to one force. So we appreciate that there's more than one muscle acting at the hip and there's more than one force occurring from the muscles around the hip, but to make it a whole lot easier for you guys and to demonstrate, we're just going to simplify and say that there's one force coming from one muscle. Or one force coming from a group of muscles that will be represented as one force. Another example, so you have an individual, we talked about pulleys, I don't know, a while ago, and I said you can use the traction for an individual that has a fracture, usually of their femur, but it can be of their tibia as well. So they have a fracture of their femur, and they're trying to make sure that there's a traction force of the femur so that um, they can stabilize it and get that individual ready for surgery. So this is a setup of traction where they're utilizing pulleys and some force to cause a traction or a pull of the femur longitudinally down the length of the femur. And there are one, two, three forces that are pulling in the same direction that are attached to the body. So we're not including this section of the pulley because there's no attachment to the body. So the forces that are acting on this section of the pulley here, this part of the rope, don't act on the body, so they're not going to be included in this calculation. And we're adding these together, so P and Q and S, and when you combine those, you get a resultant force which is R, based on the magnitude and direction of each of those individual component forces based on the pulley system. Everyone okay with that one? I have a question. Sure. How do you, how do you determine the angles of the, the structure you drew underneath the pulleys of P and Q and S? Well, this is... Theoretically, there would be like a grid set up, and you'd actually have to cal calculate the angles. So this is just a simplification of that. So if you were to actually plot this out, you would want to do something like on graph paper, utilize a computer where you can actually measure the angles and the directions and the magnitudes of each of the vectors to make sure that you're adding it up properly. But this is just a gross simplification of that. So you would actually physically measure those, either those angles, the angles and the magnitudes or the lengths of the arrows. does not. As long as they are all at the appropriate angle with the right magnitude, you're going to have the same result. Could be, and we're going to go into a little bit more of this. May answer that a bit later, but it is—it's similar. This seems like it's one step versus. Right, because we're not—I'm not breaking down all the mathematics behind it. I'm just trying to simplify it. So this is an overview of what you're referring to. I'm saying. You certainly can. The 
um, opposing force, would it not be going in the other direction? Which opposing force? Is R the, what is R? R is the resultant force of yeah. PQ and S. Okay, I was thinking it would be the, is there an equal and opposite force? The equal and opposite force would be the weight of, and the moment of inertia of that limb. Because if they weren't equal and opposite, so this is a static situation, this isn't moving. Right. Your pulleys, your traction systems be pulling with the force R, and the weight of your limb is going to be resisting that force R. Oh, okay. Sorry. So actually, because you want it to be just separating those joint surfaces, so the bone is broken somewhere up here, you want to pull away from that, so that actually the resultant force will be greater then the force normally, so you're going to try and apply an overload to pull that foot down in order to pull those bones away from each other. So if you were looking for the equal and opposite force, that would be the weight of the limb, which would be acting this way, or pulling the system toward the right. So that doesn't need to be drawn in? It can be. All you would have to do is just put an arrow on here going the other way and that would be the reaction force of the limb or the fractured femur. Okay, so sometimes the two forces don't, or the forces that you're dealing with don't always go in the same direction. And so what you can look at, this is again using the parallelogram method, it can be based on the direction of the component. So you still add the two together, but realize that you're not going to be combining them. You're probably going to be subtracting from them or creating a resultant force which is in a different direction. In this example here, this is your finger, and this is a flexor tendon, so the muscles that bend your finger and they go through pulleys and ligaments at each joint in your finger, the proximal interphalangeal joint and the distal IP joint. And this is the MCP joint, so this is where your finger connects to your hand. And the tendon comes along there and it goes through a pulley at each one of those joints, which allows you to bend your finger. But sometimes the forces that are acting don't act in the same direction. So you have a force pulling here and a force pulling in the other direction, but you add those two together to same add those two together the same and realize that your resultant force is not going to be in the same direction as either of those because they're at an angle. So here's my force one and here's my force two and this goes back to whoever asked doesn't matter which order you combine it doesn't matter. So if I add force one which is represented here to force two that's going to be my resultant force. If I add force two to force one that's still going to be my resultant force and you draw the line there. As you add those two forces together that's going to be your resultant force. So I'm still adding the vectors together, they're just not going in the same direction, so they're not adding, mathematically adding. The magnitude isn't going to be greater, the magnitude is less because this arrow is shorter than this arrow or this arrow, but it's in a different direction. So that's what helps to differentiate magnitude and direction, and this is when you have to be very careful if you're actually plotting this to calculate it to make sure that your angles are correct and your magnitudes are correct, or your force distances are correct to find out what the resultant force would be. And if I wanted to put on a reaction force, it would be an arrow starting here, going up to the bone or the joint where it comes through the pulley here, 
and that would be the pulley reaction force, which is equal to the, um, the bowstring force or the combined forces of those two muscles acting at the same time. And what you see here is that the resultant force is greater than or was greater than the collateral ligaments force, so the ligaments holding that system together. And that's common in individuals with arthritis or if you had a dislocation, for example, when you tried to flex those muscles, you would have that force which would actually dislocate the system or separate the system because you're no longer in equilibrium. So what that would be saying is that your, uh, your resultant force or the bowstring force would be greater than the force of those ligaments acting through the pulley there. And then you have a dynamic situation versus a static situation. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So you don't have to put it opposite like that, like the F, I can't read that. Is that F1 and then F1 that they put is on the opposite? But it wouldn't matter because you could. It does, yeah, that's what I said. It doesn't matter if you add F1 to F2 or F2 to F1, you're still going to get the same result in force. Is yeah, I'm just talking about the sides that they put it on like the opposite to make the parallel. Yeah. Well, because you have to have the direction and the magnitude have to be the same. So, so F1, so if you're going to add F1 to F2, the direction, which is here, and the magnitude is the same, so it has to be the same. Gotcha. That makes sense. Okay. So to add both of those, you just added F1 and F2 to both, and then just the direction? No, no. You're doing either one side, you're adding F1 to F2, or you're adding F2 to F1. What this is showing is that they both give you the same result in force. Okay. But you can do one side or the other. You don't have to do both. In the lower example, did you say that that bowstring force thing was greater than what the force of the tendon pulling back was? Exactly. So in this situation, this is the ligament connecting the pulley to the bone, and the resultant force was greater than that, so you tore or you dislocated that joint. You tore those ligaments. So static situation, normal, healthy individual, dynamic situation in an injured individual. talk about force analysis relative to muscles in a little bit bigger segments and we're back into having a local coordinate system. Now for those of you folks that have an older textbook this is going to be referred to as a normal force and a traction force I believe compression force tangential. tangential tangential X and Y is a lot easier to understand in your newer version of the textbook I think you did this on purpose it is now X and Y versus normal and tangential so if you think about it in X and Y and you can just substitute because this figure in the old text is the same as the figure in the new text the only difference is this MY would be your M um, normal and then your MX would be your, X or your M tangential so if you substitute the X and Y I think it makes it a lot easier to pick up in your head. And this is what the way it is in your new text. So if you have a new textbook, just ignore everything I said for the past 45 seconds. You can read all the articles, so you need to know right. And this is defining your X component and your Y component relative to the system that you have set up. And you're trying to remember, we talked about torque is force times moment arm. So now in the diagram, you have a Y component and an X component and your moment arm. 
So let me just back up here for a second. Here is your humerus. Here is your forearm. Here is your hand. And there's some resistance to your hand. This line here, this force M, is the muscle force associated with that muscle. And that can be broken down into the X component based on the coordinate system we have set up, which is a joint compression force, and the Y component. So Y goes up, muscle force associated with Y goes superior. So we're taking the result and then we're breaking it into component parts, as opposed to what we just did opposite, where we took component parts and made it into resultant. The X component here is going to be your joint compression force because it's an arrow connecting. It's in the same direction as the muscle force, but the X component is going in toward the joint. So that's your joint compression force. And the Y component is going to be the component which creates motion at that joint. <clears throat> so if we looked at a force just at this Y pulling up, it's going to move your hand upwards. If we looked at a force going through just X, it's going to go right down the axis of the bone into the axis of rotation. It's going to cause compression at the, axis of at the axis of rotation, and no joint movement will occur. Maybe your arm's going up, so it's the Y. Yeah. Right, so the Y brings your arm up, so that's the force that causes the movement. The X compresses, so that doesn't cause any movement. Okay? And then the moment arm remembers the distance from the joint center to the muscle insertion, the perpendicular distance between those two points. So this has a big moment arm. Does that mean that this muscle will be stronger or weaker than, a, or be able to produce more force than a muscle with a smaller moment arm? More force because you have a greater moment arm. Torque is equal to force times moment arm. You have a big moment arm, you're gonna produce a lot of torque. You have a small moment arm, you're gonna produce less amount of torque. So to get the two like resultant for MX and NY, you just took the right angle at it? Correct. So yeah, so this is a right angle here, and it's relative to our coordinate system. And what you did was you created a right triangle with the hypotenuse being the muscle force. And your opposite and your adjacent are your Y and your X force, respectively. So anytime you do that, the original force, I guess the muscle force is going to be the hypotenuse. Correct. Yes. Any other questions about this? How are we going to draw these for you if it's going to be on a computer? You're not going to draw, you're going to, you'll, I'll have you interpret these. Oh, okay. So you'll be provided with a diagram such as this with values and you'll have to interpret that. So I'm not going to actually have you draw any. Actually, I will give you guys a bonus question coming up where you guys will draw and go through some of the angle analysis if you want. It's a bonus question for take home for your test. But I'll talk about that when we get to that section. We're going to kill the triangle here for a second. Can you guys see that on board okay? So now we have a diagram indicating the muscle force of the quadriceps acting on the tibia, the weight of the shank, or the weight of the segment, and then the weight 
of this um, external weight or an external load. That's the load weight, segment weight, and the muscle force. And what we can do is we can break these down into their component forces based on our local coordinate system. So if I wanted to get the X component of my load weight, how would I draw that vector? X component and Y components are based on your local coordinate system. Right there. So if I'm trying to find the X component of my load, where's that arrow going to start from? It's going to start at the axis rotation in the middle of the weight, and it's going to go in which direction? Toward a positive X, correct. So that's going to be the load weight in the x direction. And because that's positive, I'll just put a little plus sign there. So it's a positive load weight in the x direction. Now what about the y component of that load weight? Where is that vector going to start from? Same spot, correct. It's going to start here. And how's that going to go? Negative y. It's going to go negative y, correct. Because remember, this load is going down, and these are going to be the components. This is going to be your resultant. These are going to be components. So this is going to have to go approximating the y, something like that. And this is going to be the load weight in the y direction. I'm going to put a negative there because my positive y is going up this way. So it's going to be a negative y. You get breaking this down into components then? So my segment weight. What about the x component of that? Same as what? Same as here, right. So I have segment weight in the x, which is positive, and I have segment weight in the y, which is negative. And if I were to add, if my vectors were good, which they're not, if I were to add this one, shift it down here, that would be my result. So if I take this, and I'll say this is my positive uh, segment weight x prime, so that's going to be the same as this one, just shift it, add those two vectors together, and you get the resultant force. Mm -hmm. But it wouldn't matter if you knew the other one or the other one. Correct. Correct. So it doesn't matter which one I add to the other one, they all comes out to be the same. Now what about my muscle force? Where do I start my arrow? Where do I start my vector? Yeah. So at the end of the arrow, so it's going to be the axis rotation where it's moving from. Not the axis rotation, excuse me. That's where the muscle force is acting. My x component goes which direction? Up this way. And we're going to call that the muscle force x. Is that positive or negative? Negative, because it's opposite to the positive, correct? And then my muscle force y is in which direction? 
Positive Y or negative Y? Positive Y, correct. So it's going to go up some force here, muscle force, Y, and that is also positive. And remember, if I add these two together, this is going to be my muscle force, Y prime. We're going to get the result there. So, sorry. For all of these, would one be positive or negative? For all of them. For like it's going to be based on your coordinate system. So if I were to make my positive y this way, and this wasn't here, then my y's would change. So it's just that that's why your local coordinate system is arbitrary, because you can change it. Now this might be not correct with the right-hand rule, but it's arbitrary, so you can change it around was the point that I was trying to make. The main thing is just keep it consistent. Correct. Wow, so really once you have your, global, your local coordinate system, then it has to act at all the points in your free body diagram that you're talking about. And also remember, so here's your axis of rotation, your muscle force is acting here. We have a moment arm of some distance. And you also have moment arms for the segment weight and for the load weight. Right? So now what I've this is from your text, and I've put in I think he's also in your text local coordinate systems based on the muscle forces. So this is looking at the same muscle force. Those resultants are all the same at different angles of elbow flexion and how the components, the joint compressive component, the X component, and your rotational component, your Y component, change based on joint angle. We'll talk about a couple of these more specifically. So, trig we already talked about, I'm not going to go into that. In the most simple form of this, you can look at a situation where your muscle force is equal to your Y force, which is equal to your force that's causing rotation at the joint. And in this situation, when I break it down, the muscle force is equal to the Y component because there is no X component. The muscle force is acting perpendicular to X in parallel with Y. So your Y component, all of the force here is causing rotation at the joint. Correct. So there is no X component because your muscle force is directed straight along the Y axis. So your muscle force is equal to the Y force of the muscle, which means that all of the force of that muscle is causing rotation of the joint based on this moment arm. So there's nothing to break this down into, is what I'm trying to say. Is that clear? So when the resultant force is perpendicular to the bone or to the insertion, then you're going to have your muscle force equal to your rotational force.
In this situation, we have an angle, which is 20 degrees, and your muscle force is, uh, like one, is 100. Here's your local coordinate system. X is positive at this angle going down, Y is positive at that angle going sort of upwards. And we need to calculate the Y component and the X component of the muscle force. So the joint compressive force and the rotational component. So this is 20 degrees. This is 100 newtons. We need to find the Y component and the X component. How do I do that? The resultant is 100 newtons. So this is going to be my opposite. This is my hypotenuse. And this is my adjacent of this angle, which is 20 degrees. Couldn't you also redraw that with your resultant force running from the angle head of Y to the angle head of X and work it that way? Such as that? Yeah. It's the exact same thing. Okay. Yes, it, you can. So what I have is a right triangle. Not gonna get up there. Angle's 20 degrees, this is my right triangle there. So we said, <clears throat> what's the hippie one? Old hippies. Old hippies, okay. That's all we need, old hippies. So we have this angle which is 20 degrees equal to the opposite, which is the Y component over the hypotenuse, which we have. So if we have the sine, 20 is equal to the opposite, which is the Y component. We don't have over hypotenuse, which is 100 Newtons. And we get, to solve for Y, we get 100 times the sine of 20 is equal to Y. And sine of 20 times 100 is equal to 34. So the sine of 20 is 0.34, and then your y is equal to 34 point something. So this component here is 34 newtons. Trigonometry? Yeah, you can either do it by making the prime one there, or you, like what Patsy was saying, keeping it just like it is there, and do it the other. Right, it's, the triangle is the same. It's okay. just the way that I have it just oriented. The way you want to do it. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Would um, the M X be negative? Oh, just from the label with the X positive. Correct. Okay. The M X would be negative. We haven't we haven't calculated X, but yeah, it would be negative. Yeah. So remember the signage based on your local coordinate system. And then if we're going to find y, excuse me, if we're going to find the x component, which is the adjacent component, we can do that in a couple different ways now. What's one way that we can do that? Cosine, Cosine of 20 degrees, right? Yeah. Or, or Pythagorean theorem, right? So we can square that one, square that one, get the square root. So we'll just do cosine of 20 is equal to um, so it's x over hypotenuse, which 
which is over 100, y cosine of 20 is 100, cosine of 20 is equal to y. And then, x, sorry. 94, give or take. So if this is going to be 94, I apologize, this is x. x equals 94, y equals 34, and the hypotenuse, which is your muscle force, equals 100. So would the x be negative? So yes, your x is going to be negative, mathematically speaking. So here, y is equal to 34. And then if you look at the components, if we just did this based on the vector addition, or the vector resolution, this is 34, this is 100, and this is 94, seems to make sense based on the values of those, magnitudes of those vectors. And then if you wanted to calculate the torque associated with that, remember the torque is just going to be the y component times the moment arm. If we had a moment arm, we'll say the moment arm is going to be equal to, I don't know, 0, 3 meters, which is 3 centimeters. A little bit more than an inch, probably about right. Then we can calculate the moment arm of the torque, which is causing that movement, which is the muscle force Y, muscle force Y times the internal moment arm is equal to the torque, and we get 34 times point. 0.03 times 0.03 and we get 1.02 newton meters of torque. Does everyone understand how I calculated the component forces of the muscle based on the resultant force which is the muscle force? based on the right-hand rule in trigonometry. Not, excuse me, not the right-hand rule, right triangle rule. And then how I calculate the torque based on the component forces which cause the torque times the moment arm. Do you redo the moment arm with the component? The last part? Yep, so this part here, which is equal to this part here, is the component that causes rotation of the joint. This part here causes joint compression. So this part doesn't cause movement, this part causes movement. So in order to determine the torque, we need the force times the moment arm. And so this is the force, is 34 newtons in the moment arm, it's 0.03, so I just calculated that. It's whatever force is perpendicular to the moment arm. Whatever force is perpendicular, correct, yes. So this the muscle insertion to the, the, there. the moment arm, yes, is a perpendicular distance from the axis of rotation to the insertion of the muscle. Good. Where'd you get the point of three from? I just, that's the moment arm. I just made it up. If you guys make it up, I'll dock you for it, though. <laughs> There's more examples of this here in the book, and I'm not going to go through each of these, but what it does, and I'll pull this down to you. So this is from the same diagram. This is from your text. You have your angle, um, different moment arms. This one we just calculated. This one we just calculated. 
So here we go, we have different angle, we have muscle force, and we can get the component force, component forces, excuse me, and the torque based on the component forces times the moment arm. It's the same thing that I just did, just looking at a different joint angle. And then what you can decipher from that, I think I have a couple more examples here. If you guys want to do this as practice, I'll review this when we meet again, which will be a week from today. But what this shows you, and this is just a slide earlier, is that based on the changing angle, joint angles, you're going to have a different amount of force production based on the components, and you're going to have a different, different amount of torque associated with those. So this joint angle, I'm going to get a lot of force causing rotational force, causing torque, because my MY component is great. Whereas here, my MY component is much smaller, and my moment arm is going to be the same because it's the same joint. The muscle inserts at the same point. So my axis of rotation doesn't change. My muscle insertion doesn't change. So my moment arm is always the same. And the amount of torque or force causing rotation is the only thing that changes. So at this angle, my MY is this vector. At this angle, my MY is this vector. So I'm going to produce more torque at this joint angle than I am at this joint angle. Great. Did everyone follow? Because that's the big take-home point here. The component that causes the rotation makes you stronger or able to produce more torque at different joint angles. So these are just different examples. You can work out this one. We're going to skip that one for now. Okay. Questions on that? So we should just practice this. And just, yeah, there's that with sample one. Practice is going to make And then I'll go over this one on a week from today when we meet again because next week we're in the lab. Or excuse me, next session we're in the lab. Take five minutes. I'll talk about calculating center of mass and we'll get into dynamic analysis. So the weight's acting down at the center of mass through some moment arm this way. The force, which is the reading of the scale, because this is balanced, is acting up at this moment arm. So those two are going to be equal and opposite because this individual is not moving. Therefore, the weight of the body times the moment arm of the center of mass of the body minus the force of the scale times the moment arm of the scale, which is the L, are going to be equal, which is going to equal to zero. So if you subtract one from the other, you're going to have zero there. Or you can look at it that way as they're both equal. And then what you're going to do is you're going to solve for x, which is the center of mass of the individual based on the distance from the support to that individual's center of mass. Let me try this thing now. So, substituting, does everyone see how I get x there? How I get the distance to the center of mass? How I get that? Okay. So I have the weight of the person, the length of the board, and then the scale reading, which is, relative, which is f. So the weight that is recorded on the scale at this position here is f. My X will give the center of mass position from the support, but because his feet are lined up with the support, it's going to be the center of mass of his body. Right, so 
the distance from his feet up. And then you can substitute those in, and it's 34 times 178, so it would be 1.78 meters, divided by 65. What is it that we're finding? You're finding the distance from this. What you're finding is the moment arm. But this moment arm is going to be equal to the distance from his feet to the center of mass of his body. So then I get 9.93, uh, um, 0.93 meters. Would you change it to meters? Or you can leave it at centimeters, it's fine. So it would be 93 centimeters, that's not an issue. So then if this individual is 178 meters tall, his center of mass is going to be 178 minus 93, 5, 8, 85 centimeters. So he's going to have 85 centimeters of mass above his center of mass, or excuse me, height, and then 93 centimeters below. So this represents his body. Here's his head, feet. Center of mass is going to be right here. There's going to be 93 centimeters below and 85 centimeters above his center of mass. But since his head is not all It would not be different because when he was on, we zeroed the board, which is the mass of the board. So it's going to be the center of mass of the system, which his system is the body, or his body is the system. But in the diagram, you have L, the length, has the length of the board and not his board. Oh, you're correct. So I screwed that up. But it, it doesn't make any difference. It's still going to be, the center of mass is still going to be 93 centimeters from his feet up into his pelvis somewhere. Yeah, you are correct. The L is the length of the board. But because we're talking about rotation about some point, axis of rotation, it doesn't matter. It's just going to be the distance from here to there. And since his feet are lined up, it's 93 centimeters from here to there. And if you wanted to determine the center of mass of the body in some static situation, which is not such as that, I think this one is in your notes, you can calculate the position. So this is just a graph with an X and a Y. And you can calculate the position of each of those. And you can add all those and take the averages and get the center of the mass of the body that way. I'm not going to ask you guys to do that one. Is that last picture in the book? Uh, not in your book, no. It's in a different book. Um, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Just from this, I just want you guys to understand that you can calculate the center of mass in any position just using a whole lot of math based on the distances in the x and y direction. And, this, and the moments of inertia or the masses of those segments relative to that position. And again, appreciate here, this is the center of mass, so it's not in the body, so the center of mass is not always within the physical body itself. Change your brains for a minute.
I'm going to talk about dynamic analysis. I'm going to do this relatively quickly because we don't have that much time. And I wanted to get to this before we see the lab on Thursday. Course objectives. So dynamic analysis is needed when there's unbalanced forces and when there's movement occurring, whether it's accelerating or decelerating. These forces can be measured either directly or indirectly, and we'll talk about how to do each of those. Here you can see, I thought this was interesting, a picture of a skier, and they have a video camera here set up to look at his movements, and they actually have force platforms in his boots to see how much he's weighting one boot over the other boot and how it relates to his turning. And we'll talk about all those different pieces of equipment and how they're utilized. Kinematics, remember, is movement without regard to forces. And variables associated with kinematic analysis are position, displacement, the velocity, and the acceleration. So these have nothing to do with force. It's all about how it's moving and how fast it's moving or changing velocities, accelerating. Here's a right-hand rule for you guys again. And kinematics allow us to examine the actual pattern of human performance during some functional task. There's tons of different applications for this. Just depends on what you're interested in looking at. So you can look at individuals and pet with pathologic populations. You can look at folks with low back pain and the way that they use their muscles and the way that, way that, the way that they walk or lift an object is different than an individual without back pain. You can look at gait, whether it's running or walking. You can look at landing from a jump. You can look at anything you want to look at. Pretty much you can look at with these. I just reviewed a paper and they looked at throwing on a straight line versus throwing for distance and how those movement patterns differed and they did it outside in a baseball field utilizing all this equipment. So you can use this for anything that you want to look at. You can look at at-risk populations, so distance runners, they're at risk for injury, so you can look at the biomechanics of their running or the kinematics of their running. You can look at female athletes because they tear their ACL at higher incidence than male athletes, so why is that? There's some kinematic patterns associated with that also. And the list can just go on forever, depending on what you want to look at. This is the sort of outline I'm going to follow for today. So the goal of kinematic equipment is to provide data that can be utilized to determine kinematic variables and understanding why people with low back pain lift something differently or why they walk differently or why females say their ACL more. So you're trying to get some data to quantify movement. And it was originally described, um, I want to say Michelangelo, but I could be wrong, but it was through comparative anatomy and observation. So it's looking at how do people move very rudimentarily, and then today we have all the sophisticated equipment that can do that type of analysis. And then kinematics, as noted today, utilizing some sort of special equipment, started as a drunken challenge by the governor of California. Um, not this guy, but the governor of California back in the day. Has anyone heard of Stanford University? Yes. Okay. Leland Stanford was the governor of California back in the 1800s. And he was um, basically a crook because he's a governor of California. <laughs> and a gambler and a drinker. And he was arguing at the horse races one day with someone else that was probably rich sitting next to him. That during horse running, at no point in time, were all four hooves off the ground. And so the horse was running really quick, so you couldn't actually visualize this 
between two guys that were drinking enough to settle that. So this guy had a lot of money and a lot of time on his hands and he started a university and this was one of the things that he did. So he hired someone from Eastman Kodak to take repetitive pictures over and over again really quickly to see if there was a time when all four hooves were off the ground during horse running. And because of that, he won a bet and, I don't know, a bottle of scotch or something. So, but this is the original print from that and it's from, what year, 1878. And that was sort of the start of trying to measure kinematic analysis. So like all good ideas, it starts with a drink. Kinematics today depends on the reference frame, global versus local. We talked about this. Do you need me to go over that again? Global, local? Okay, I'm not. Kinematic variables, we have strict definition, so position which is just where that limb is in space. Velocity, the speed at which it's moving and acceleration. Is it speeding up or is it slowing down? And then these can be broken down into anatomical definitions. So you're looking at the joint angle, so which is the position of the forearm relative to the humerus. Joint velocities, how quick is that movement occurring? And then is that accelerating or is it decelerating? So it's looking at this relative to the human versus relative to the environment. One, may, one way you can measure kinematics and looking at specifically position is through the use of an electrogoniometer. And here's a, different, a few different pictures of different types of electrogoniometers. But what an electrogoniometer does is it utilizes a voltage between two known ends. And as that angle changes between those, the voltage changes. So when you're in a straight line, there's a certain voltage between those two segments. So here is that um, electrogoniometer not connected to an individual, and there's a straight line there. So I plug all this information in, and there's a voltage going between those two. So then I hook it up to an individual's joint, like the knee joint here, and this angle, we'll say, is 60 degrees. And I record that using a regular goniometer where I just actually calculate the angle, that angle right there. We're going to say it's 60 degrees. And we know that there's a voltage changed based on the amount of the angle there because the voltage is dependent on the length of distance with which it has to travel. And so once you have those two references, as the voltage changes, you can calculate the angle change. So if I want to see how much someone's knee bends or straightens when they walk, I can hook this up if I have a straight, these two straight lined up, just like here, we know there's some voltage. At this angle, which is 60 degrees, we're going to say there's a different voltage. And based on the changing voltage, which is recorded by the computer, I can determine the joint angles or the bending and straightening that go through the knee. That's an electrogoniometer. Do we have electrogoniometers, Dr. Williams? We don't have any. Um, they're kind of outdated. They're not used a whole lot anymore because the information you get isn't that reliable. Um, the data is relative and it must be determined to absolute angles. So what you get are voltage changes and then you have to calculate the angles based on your initial setup. So there's a little bit of work involved. It takes time to perform all those calculations initially in order to get the data that you want to get at the end. 
And depending on what activity you're going to have that individual do, the movement may be limited based on the position or having that goniometer attached to them. It also may not be appropriate for non-hinge joints. So if it doesn't move in a straight line, the information that you get may not be a whole lot of use to you. What's good about these things, they're pretty cheap, relatively cheap. I think one is probably a couple hundred dollars, which is relatively cheap when you're talking about kinematic data analysis. The information you get is immediate, so you get a voltage signal immediately. And the rotation record is independent of the plane of movement, which could be good or bad, because if they're not a hinge joint, then you may be recording things that are out of the plane. So it could be good or bad, depending on what type of movement you're looking at the joint going through. An accelerometer, we have uh, an accelerometer. I showed you guys the Mayo test last week where the guy jumped, or yeah, last week where he jumped on one foot. What they're measuring is changes in acceleration relative to gravity. And inside an accelerometer, which just, as it sounds like, accelerometer measures acceleration, it can determine acceleration changes in three planes, so your x, y, and your z, so you can see how an individual moves based on accelerations in those different planes of motion. What it is, it's a force transducer that converts energy from one type to another, and it measures acceleration relative to gravity. Directly what you're measuring is acceleration, and actually it's voltage, and then you can change the voltage, again, this is all software related, into force and acceleration. So you have acceleration that occurs over some period of time, so the acceleration time to time gives you the velocity, and then if you know that time, multiply it times time, you can get the position. So if you look at this, the units, I look at units a lot because that help, that's how things make sense to me. So if I'm gonna, trying to go from acceleration to velocity, I need to multiply times time, which is seconds, so I'm looking at units here. And I got meters per second, which is velocity. And then if I'm trying to calculate the movement that occurred or position, I multiply times time again, and then I get meters, which is a displacement, or the position. So you can either go that way, or if you have position, you can utilize time to go in the opposite direction. So divide by time, and you get velocity, and if you divide by time again, you get acceleration. So accelerometer uses acceleration to calculate velocity and position, whereas another, like the electrogoniometer, calculates position and you can get velocity and acceleration from that. So you're going one direction or the other. And the further you get from the direct measurement, the more error is associated because you're doing calculations. So accelerometers are used all the time. You have accelerometers in your digital camera to see how much you're accelerating in one direction and it can change the shutter speed based on that or it can minimize the um, blurriness based on that. In your laptop computers, most of your laptops have accelerometers in them. So if I were to take my laptop and go like that, the accelerometer appreciates that my computer is dropping with the acceleration equal to gravity and it automatically kicks off the hard drive so if it breaks you don't lose any data or any information on your hard drive. Accelerometers are what run your airbags in your car, huge deceleration, airbag kicks on. So all of those things are accelerometers, we're just using it for a very specific purpose, but it is a lot of other general purposes as well. 
What's good about these things? You get immediate data, they're cheap. Cheap sometimes is good, sometimes is bad, and they're relatively easy to operate. Disadvantages, um, there's a few of these. Acceleration is relative to the position on the segment. So when you start doing your calculations, if I have an accelerometer on my ankle versus close to my knee, the amount of movement that occurs there is different, um, and so it's relative. If you're gonna do acceleration, put them all over your body, it can be expensive because you're not using just one, you're looking at a whole bunch of them. They may limit the movement depending on how they're attached to your body. They break relatively easy, which is one of the main problems. The information you get um, may have some other information in there. So if I'm wearing an accelerometer on my belt, it may be that my belt is shaking as I walk and it's not actually recording how much my body moves, but it's how much my belt moves on my body. So that's what noisy data means. It's just data that, it's data that isn't related to what you're trying to look at. And you get the movement relative to a segment. So you only get the segmental movement, you don't get the whole body movement. Cinematography, it's just using a standard video. And usually what standard video, especially digital videos, they take recordings at 30 frames per second. So it's just taking a picture 30 times in a second or 30 hertz. And there are cameras that go a whole lot faster than that. I don't know if this is gonna work sometimes when links have been dead. But here you can see a high speed camera of a golf club hitting a golf ball. And this is 10,000 pictures per second in super slow motion. So what you're gonna see is there's the ball, there's a club coming in, and you're gonna see the deformation. Now look at the ball, it hasn't moved off the tee, but the club's coming so fast there's deformation in the ball as it comes off the club. So when you have a camera like that, obviously you can study things very, very detailed, like a super high velocity golf swing. Um, where am I at? Or you can look at, I don't know why you would, but if you're trying to study, hmm, we're gonna, just gonna show up right now. So this is a dart going through water balloons. And this just shows, so this is 10,000 frames per second and you can see how super slow-mo, the stuff that happens when you shoot a dart through water balloons. Now if I was a, water balloon investigator by profession, this information would be very useful to me. <laughs> Unfortunately for you guys, I'm not, so it doesn't give me a whole lot of information. But you can see that the data that you would get from that is very detailed relative to your Sony Handycam or your iPhone video functions. Um. So one of the... Um, Okay, so obviously the one that does 10,000 frames per second is pretty expensive. I think they're about 80 grand. And the one that you get on your phone is worth, what, $200 or free if you get a two-year contract? So it just depends on how much money you want to spend is how much information you can get. But if you are trying to get more than one plane of movement, video is not a whole lot of good unless you combine multiple videos together. And then when you do that, you're going to have to use some sort of computer program in order to bring those two together in order to get information um, which again, it becomes time and people intensive. 
So cinematography is just regular video. It's easy. It's video camera. You can record anybody doing anything. They're not limited in any way. Right now, you can collect that data in real time. So as long as you're looking at one dimension, you can actually calculate joint angles and things as they go through the movement. It's relatively cheap, depending on the type of video camera that you use. Most folks here could figure out a video camera, so they're not that difficult to use. If you're trying to do a specific kinematic analysis, you have time, it's time consuming to digitize each frame. So what you're doing is you're taking a picture and you're gonna say, this is where the elbow is, this is where the forearm is, this is where the shoulder is, and there's gonna be 30 of those pictures per second that you have to link together. That's called digitizing. So you're looking at how the segment moves, how my arm moves, I've got 30 pictures per second where I have to say, this is my wrist, this is my elbow, this is my shoulder. If I do something for three minutes, that's a lot of indicating or digitizing where those anatomical landmarks are. So it takes a long period of time. There's no reference point on the person, so we don't have a global reference frame. We only have a local reference frame. You can add a global reference frame if you put some sort of measurement device within the picture itself. So if I had an individual and I'm looking at them swinging a golf club, I can get the movement of their arm, but I can't get the movement of their whole body. So I need to put in something that indicates how their body moves relative to their global environment. So I could put in some sort of, what I probably would put in is like a tripod with an X, Y, and a Z on it so I can see how they move in different directions. And it becomes more difficult when you get more cameras involved. Getting a little bit more sophisticated, there's, imaging, um, there's active and passive optical systems, and I'll describe each of these. What this is, is it uses fancy cameras, multiple cameras, to deter determine movement of your joints based on markers that you put on the joint. So here's an individual's foot, and you can see in each of one of these little markers, there's a circle. And with that circle, there's a, a laser light that lights up at, I think, up to 3,000 times per second. So if you're going to look at that, it's just going to look like a red light. But it's actually blinking 3,000 times per second. And there's special cameras that can pick up the blinking of that light. So as I'm walking forward, the markers on my foot are blinking, and the cameras which are surrounding me determine how my body, or how these markers are moving, which indicates how my body is moving. They're called active markers because these actually physically emit something. They emit light that the cameras can pick up. And they're flashed sequentially, and light is captured by these special cameras. They use a whole lot of math to determine in that, if they do 3,000 times per second, each blink is going to move some distance, and as they connect each blink within the software program that can determine how that foot moves. So I go from one XYZ position to another XYZ position within the 3,000th 3, of a second that causes in between those blinks and the computer can calculate how much movement occurs there and then connect all those together to determine how the joint moves or the limb moves or the body moves or whatever you're looking at. So this is pretty sophisticated, obviously. It's gonna be expensive. I don't know how much these systems are. I guess 125,000, give or take. Tens of thousands. Um, one thing that's nice about these is they have, the cameras pick up that blinking light really well. 
and because they blink so quickly you can see very detailed movement so if you have a small movement you can pick that up so they're very precise some of the difficulties with that is you can see the cables that are required um, they can limit the movement and you can only do this movement in a room where there is less infrared light so you have to have all the windows closed and the cameras have to be surrounding you so you can't be doing this outside or anything like that and if the cameras don't see those blinking lights, those markers are considered out of view, so you don't get to see what happens in that time period. So if the camera, um, if I cross my hands, for example, there's going to be a time when the cameras can't see a marker on my hand. And so you don't know how the hand moves during that time period. And the movement is relative to that segment. So you can compare movements of the forearm to the humerus and you can infer how it moves relative to the global, but you have to set up a global coordinate system again. So a video-based system, so this is a similar technology except you're utilizing infrared reflectors. So this is the marker set I showed you guys before. This is your Helen Hayes marker set. And you can use, this can be two-dimensional or three-dimensional. And which these reflectors on the body are just that. It's just a ball of reflective tape. And the way that this system differs from your active system, this is a passive system because these don't actually emit anything, but there's cameras surrounding it. This is a system we're going to see on Thursday. And the cameras surrounding it will send out infrared signals at 2 to 500 times per second. So 2 to 500 hertz. And then as the light reflects back off of these reflectors into the camera, that's how it calculates the movement. So instead of these being active, these are reflective, and the cameras are sending infrared light and then collecting the reflection to determine how that movement occurs. And then based on the coordinate data of each of these markers, you can calculate how the segments attached to those markers move. Similar to the other one, you can pretty much do whatever you want to do as far as movement occurs. I've used a lot of this system and we had, it was during my PhD and we had a big biomechanics lab and they had remote laboratories in these ritzy golf courses like Pinehurst and down in the David Ledbetter Academy in Orlando, Florida. And I had to go down and train folks how to use this type of equipment. And what you do is they were analyzing a golf swing. So you get them set up and similar to that. And they, have, they swing a golf club and you want to see how their body moves while they're swinging a golf club. So what you have to do is you have to go in and you get the digital data relative to a whole room and they swing a golf club and there's a couple markers on the golf club and then once you have that information you go into the computer and you say this is the wrist, this is the forearm, this is the elbow, this is the humerus, this is the shoulder through the whole body. So that's going to be setting up or digitizing your markers but the software now unlike the video camera which takes 30 pictures per second you have to digitize each of those you digitize this once and then it stays the whole time. So one time you say, this is the foot, ankle, shank, knee, thigh, and then for all the sequence following that, those are already indicated. So it works a lot better than that. Um, some of the software now you can have the individual stand and it'll automatically pick up those spots. If you say I'm using a Helen Hayes marker set, it'll realize all these markers are and you don't even have to do that component. I haven't seen that one used yet, but I know that that's what I have across the street. And this is accurate data depending on the marker sets. So we talked about 
when I showed you guys the picture earlier today, there's the Helen Hayes marker set versus the point cluster technique. And the point cluster had a lot more markers. So you're gonna get really good resolution with all those markers, but it's gonna be a little bit more of a pain because you're gonna get a lot more data. So it's sort of a trade-off. Disadvantage is this, obviously it's expensive. A new system set up to do pretty much everything you want is about $200,000. Another problem here is that you can get marker obstruction. So when the individuals were doing the golf swing, they, when they come across their body, we would always lose forearm markers, so you'd have to go back in and re-digitize. So even though you would set it and say this is the forearm, what happens was when they start across their hands, the forearm can switch and you have a left forearm where the right forearm is. And so when you're looking at the information, when you get the printout of the data, then you look at all that and say, oh, okay, and you have to go back and change it. Um, again, this is going to be segmental movement, so you have to set up a global coordinate system. One of the problems with any of these types of systems is that there's skin movement relative to the body movement. So we're assuming that the way that the marker moves is the way that the body's moving, but actually we know that the skin moves on the body, so what you're recording is actually the skin movement of the markers. And the way that they then know that this occurs is because, and this is a setup, although it's not that good, this is two skin-based markers for a reflective system, and it's kind of hard to see, but down here, you have an X and a Y and a Z drilled into that guy's humerus. So they put a pin into his bone, so that's BP, that's bone pin, and then they see when he is simulating throwing, how much these shake relative to this, because this is how the segment is going to move. When his bone is moving with a screw in it, that's how his bone is moving. And the skin is going to move on top of that. So you can actually calculate skin movement based on, based on the segment movement. <laughs> Anyone want to sign up for that study? No, me either. But you can calculate skin movement in it. Depending on the system that you're using, it's going to be different. So all the ones previous to that are all going to be measuring the skin movement because they're attached to the skin. The it's close enough it's that... The right. Yeah. So they use that as a mm, validity study to say that there is some skin movement, but generally the markers go in the same movement as the bones, so we don't need to drill into bones every time we want to do a motion analysis study. I'm going to go through two more and then I'll be done for today. Um, electromagnetic tracking device, this is another system that utilizes um, a different way to measure motion analysis. And this is a setup here, this is what the machine looks like, and this is what the markers on your body look like. It's usually attached either by, via tape or via a cuff, and it's got a wire going to it. And what happens is, is you have a transmitter that sends out an electromagnetic signal and creates a field in front of that transmitter. And there are three fields actually, according to the right-hand rule, an X and a Y and a Z. And what you're calculating is the parts that you attach to your body or the markers are special magnets that are wired into a computer. And so how those magnets move within the magnetic field approximates how your body moves within the magnetic field. So it contains three orthogonal coils. Orthogonal means at right angle to each other, remember? So that's your X, Y, and your Z. And you have a low frequency electromagnetic field that's created. These sensors are in that field and how they move in that field is how your body moves within that field. You can see the wires, it goes into a software program and this is all math and computers and things like that. 
This is good because you get the information straight away. There's no processing to do. You just say this is the humerus and it gives you all the information. It provides position and rotation. So it gives you your six degrees of freedom because it can pick up more slight movements than the other Martian analysis systems I talked about. Marker obstruction is not an issue because you're not using video cameras. And it's really accurate. One of the problems is that the cables are attached to cables. So if I'm going to do a golf swing, I'm going to have 10 cables attached to me, which might change the way that I swing. Although the newer systems are wireless, obviously they're more money. One of the issues with this is that you're in an electromagnetic field. If you have metal in that area, it's going to distort your field and could give you different data. And you can have movement sensor relative to the segment. One last one we're going to talk about, and this is known as radiography. Yes, you can. Sure, go ahead. Um, if you have someone that has, say, uh, metal pins or whatnot in their body, mm -hmm. would you have to ask them if they've got that before you use this on them? Usually the metal pin, well, it's not going to be an issue as far as heating or anything like that of the pins of the body. And the amount of metal that is required to distort the electromagnetic field is a lot required. Um, my PhD, I utilized this technology, and I had a kayak ergometer, which is like a rowing machine, but it's a kayaking machine, which is all metal. And I calculated the error associated with that, and it was two millimeters positional error difference. So the amount of metal that you'd have to bring in would either be really close to the transmitter or a huge piece of metal. So it's not a massive issue. So something like bone pins is not going to be a problem at all. Or joint replacement or anything like that is not an issue. Cineradiography, so this is the calculations or the theoretical design of cineradiography. Um, looks pretty straightforward and it's a little bit more complex than this. But what it is, it's a diagnostic technique, technique in which a movie camera is used to th film the images of internal body structures. Produce the radiography through x-ray or fluoroscopy. So there's two different kinds of ways to do this. So what happens is, is you have multiple x-rays occurring very quickly at the same time. So I'm going to take 60 or 100 x-rays per second to see how an individual walks. So I've got x-ray machines behind me and the side of me. I'm going to walk down some platform and it's going to determine how my bones are moving during that task, whether it's walking, running, jumping, whatever. Then the computer software aligns one part of the bone with the same part of the bone as it moves through the field. So I connect my lateral malleolus, which is the outside of my ankle bone, at one point, two points, three points, five points, up to however many thousands of points, and I see how the bone moves. So it eliminates bone movements because you're measuring the bone movements. It eliminates the skin movement, excuse me, relative to the bone. So that's one way to do it. Another way you can do that is you can augment your bones with metal balls. And what this actually is, is when you have surgery, so when I was at Pittsburgh, Freddie Fu, who's an orthopedic surgeon, was trying to look at two different types of ACL replacement surgeries. And when he was in surgery, he fixed the ACL one way or the other way, and then he drilled BBs into the femur and into the tibia. And they did the exact same thing. They had them walk in front of the x-ray machines, and these balls pick up really nicely because it's metal in an x-ray field. And so as they look at the movements of those balls which are implanted in the bones, they can see how the bones move relative to one another. 
And what they were looking at, if this is your femur and this is your tibia, he wanted to see how much rotation occurred axially from one surgical technique to another surgical technique. And this is the way they utilized to do that. Obviously, people consented to having these bones put in, or these balls, metal balls in their bones. So advantages to this, you're going to get the most accurate movement you can because you're recording how the bones move relative to one another. And you get six degrees of freedom. You can record pretty much anything you want. Disadvantages, you get massive, I don't know about massive, but you get pretty high exposure to radiation. You may have to have metal balls embedded into your bones. <laughs> Obviously, a system like this costs more than 50 bucks. There are, I think it's around two and a half million dollars to set up a system like that. And there's a lot more math than I could possibly comprehend associated with calculating all those things. So I wanted to get through kinematics because they're going to talk about that with the lab tour on Thursday. Tuesday next week, next week we'll pick up with kinetics and we'll go back to some more calculations based on free body diagrams. Questions?